Please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel 22. We, we looked at the first two verses uh, last week. Uh, we want to look at the entire chapter this week. So um, one of the advantages of meeting at 10 as opposed to 11 is uh, you can look at an entire chapter. And so long as we're out by noon, uh, there's no complaints, right? So it gives me solid... 100 minutes, so we could probably at least get halfway through. No, Psalm or 1 Samuel 22, and uh, we want to, you, you will be on page 265 of your pew Bibles. With that, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. We'll, we'll read the whole chapter. The writer of 1 Samuel writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We'll start in verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there. Uh, to him and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. He became commander over them and there were with him about 400 men. David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. He left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go to in the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and that the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the Tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders and thousands of commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one is disclosed to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And the king said, a king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all of his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all who were uh, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitab. He, he answered, Here I, I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have acquired of God for him, that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law, captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of, of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. The king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword." One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for... 
uh, allowing us to, to gather to worship. May we do so in spirit and in truth. Open our eyes, our mouths, our hands, our feet, our minds, our heart, our ears. Uh, that your word may be received and it may be obeyed. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I'd like to uh, read a classic hymn that I think many of you will recognize and see if you can, <coughs> excuse me, uh, remember what theologian wrote this. I don't know why I did the things I did. I don't know why I said the things I said. Pride's like a knife. It can cut deep inside. Words are like a weapons. They wound sometimes. I didn't really mean to hurt you. I didn't want to see you go. I know I made you cry, but baby, if I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that hurt you, you'd stay. If I could reach the stars, I'd give them all to you. Then you'd love me, love me like you used to do if I could turn back time. Sounds to me like a lot of you pagans are listening to bad music. I tell you, this is, this is awful. Of course, that is the great theologian we say with tongue in cheek, Cher. <laughs> I say Cher and all of a sudden the Gen Zers are like, Cher, that's my economic view of life. <laughs> give it a second. Give it a second. Gen Zers still don't get that joke. It's okay. It's okay. They were taught not to laugh. Okay. Uh, Cher, if I could turn back time, her, uh, I guess you could say classic hit, I guess. I don't want to sound like a kid from the 80s that couldn't care less about Cher. But uh, one of the things I thought about this week is how many pop songs are about going back in time and changing things about life. Do you ever really consider that? Uh, I, I came across one by Kenny Chesney that uh, my wife and I used to joke about whenever it came on the radio when, when we were young. But uh, this one in particular sticks out to me because the point of the song is a confession that she has made a mistake in the past that ruined a relationship. And if she could turn back time and had to live it all over again, she would. And we've all asked this question. If, if you could go back in time and change things, would you? And you're supposed to say no because the things of the past have made me the person I am today. And let's be honest, that is bogus. We would change a million things about our past. And, and the reason is because whether we would articulate it as a society or not, we understand that we are broken people, sinners, and that has uh, dire effects on other people. Sin, we see, has a corrosive effect. It breeds guilt, shame, and inescapable consequences. And that is a lesson David, like all of us, must learn over and over and over again. Notice that in the first 10 verses, we see the reality that sin haunts. Sin haunts. In fact, these, these 10 verses are really broken down in, into two parts, two acts, if you will. The first act is when David moves his army to, to Horeth there in verses 1 to 5. We saw 
Verses 1 and 2. Last week where David is in hiding as a fugitive in uh, the caves of Adullam. That is a moment of sorrow and a moment of of deep personal reflection uh, that we talked about last week. So he moves from the caves of Adullam. In verses 3 to 4, he moves to uh, Moab. Now this is a significant event because of David's connection to Moab. It's, most commentators agree that David goes to Moab to protect his parents. They're, they're too elderly to, to, to round up armies and go fight the king, right? They're too elderly for civil war. But th- th- he can drop them off in Moab because, remember, David's great-grandmother was a Moabitess. So that would be Jesse's grandmother is from Moab. That, of course, is Ruth. In fact, if you want an interesting little footnote, this is free. It won't change your life, but it's something I discovered this week, and and you have to suffer through the things I discover and get fascinated about. But think about it. If if David's great-grandmother is Ruth, and we meet again Ahimelech, who we met in the previous chapter, the priest at Nob, his great-grandfather is Eli. That means the events of Hannah and Eli and all of them that take place early on in 1 Samuel take place in the same generation as the book of Ruth. So Ruth, uh, you know, gets married in Moab, moves to Moab when she's a widow, eventually meets Boaz, uh, who's a rich, handsome young man. Right, ladies? And they get married, right? And, and all of that takes place early on in 1 Samuel. Well, uh, from there, he then moves to Judah. Gad, the prophet we discover there in verse 5, tells David he needs to move out of Moab. Don't involve the Moabites. This is a civil war, essentially. Do not involve the, the Moabites. So David moves to Judah. Now, just again, a quick note about Gad. It's the first time he appears in the Bible. Uh, the name, the, the tribe and all that appears. But in terms of this character, he, he shows up. He will stick by David to the very end. The 400 people with David are the most loyal to David. To, to, to his death. In fact, Gad will be there at the dedication of Solomon's temple and will play a role in organizing the worship and the ceremonies that take place at that temple. Well, in Act 2, verses 6 to 10, David hunts for, uh, or Saul hunts for David. And what Saul discovers is that David uh, has been found, and thus Saul, with his army, is going to hunt him down. So in verse 7, Saul uh, responds whenever he discovers where David is. He, he, he sounds uh, quite striking here in verse 7 and 8. He, he sounds two things. One, he sounds like a manipulative politician, doesn't he? Notice there verse verse 7. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Now, you read that, but read it with the voiceover guy on negative political ads. Does it make sense now? King David will cancel Christmas. King David will teach children the earth is flat. King David will give our nukes to North Korea. King David doesn't eat red meat like the rest of us red-blooded Americans. He doesn't even believe in apple pie. Whatever it, ridiculous thing. Oh, there's one recently we got in the mail. It said, this person they're running against is rich. <laughs> I thought, is that one going to work? I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I already know like all of them are. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like me pointing out, hey, did you know that person's a Christian? Can you believe that? <laughs> but notice, secondly, um, he sounds like a whiny baby. Notice there verse 8. 
All of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And he's just a whiny baby. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as at this day. I mean, we've got enough teenagers like this. Do we need another? Apparently we do. Okay. Um, but what we have here is a common problem with bitter, wounded people. Because perse- uh, persecutors always feel persecuted. Bitter people always believe in personal conspiracies. They always believe the world is turning against them. Everyone is against them. Everyone is paying attention to, to little things about them. And, and, and the anxiety rates go up and the bitterness is fed. And so they believe all of these lies. And here is Saul hunting down one of his very citizens, someone in his camp. And he will stop at nothing, even if it means he has priestly blood on his hands. He will stop at nothing because he believes in lies. These are lies he believes in. And he's become conspiratorial, thinking not just that David, David is against him. Now everybody is against him. He is unhealthy. And we see this is a spiritual crisis, not just a mental one. And then we meet Doeg the Edomite. It's a great name for, for your next gerbil, whatever pet you, you, your kids make you get. And, and now let me ask you, do, do you remember Doeg the Edomite? You may not. We purposely skipped over him two weeks ago when we were in chapter 21. Go over chapter 21, verse 7. Verse 7. Remember that David flees to Nob. Later he'll flee to Gath where he gets Goliath's sword. Um, or he, he gets Goliath's sword in Nob, but then he, he flees to the home of Goliath. Verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. That's easy to skip over that detail, isn't it? You can see the camera as it as, as you have this, this scene with David and Ahimelech, all of a sudden the camera zooms over to that one guy that those two characters didn't know was there. And you know something bad's going to come out of this. And we're, we're seeing that here. Doag is there when Ahimelech and David meet and he witnesses Ahimelech uh, uh, aiding and abetting and even weaponizing the fugitive. And now it comes back to haunt David. You see, Doeg is a character from David's past. And as far as David and Ahimelech were concerned, that was a two-person conversation. Their secret was safe with them. But now they are discovering that what was done in secret is now about to be made public. There is a third witness involved. And so what we see here is that David's sin, David's past, David's regret, David's shame, as we'll see at the end of the chapter, is coming back to haunt him. He wants to keep everything in the past under that rug and and, and hidden to where no one can find it. And yet that is impossible. Five and a half years ago, actually, we're coming up on six years ago that uh, we, we, we first met you guys. It was uh, around uh, the week before and after Christmas of 2014 when we first met y'all. And I remember a conversation with, with my wife. We were really excited about the possibilities of, of moving to Frankfurt. We, we, we had interviewed all over the country, as far west as Utah and California, and uh, uh, we almost moved to Kansas and Iowa and whatnot. And we ended up landing at the church nearest, really, uh, where we had 
applied near his home. In fact, my mother worked right over here. And, and, and as sad as that was, uh, it was really nerve wracking because I knew, having grown up in, in Owington, that a lot of people uh, live in Owington County but work in Frankfurt. And I like to thank them for their tax money. Uh, our economy appreciates it. But I knew in that that is being the case and that we would spend more time in our hometown. That would mean I would run into old high school acquaintances. Now, I wasn't a bad kid in high school, but I was a teenager in high school. And I was worried about, uh, will they remember that one day, that day I've, I've, I've tried to suppress to the back of my mind? Will they remember that day? I also was worried, like, do they remember something I've forgotten? Or is that going to come up to haunt me? Do they see me as that punk kid I used to be or someone I've sought to be ever since? What information uh, do they have and what would they do with that information about my past? You see, if you let it, the past can haunt you. And when we live lives of unsurrendered sin, we, we, we realize that there are consequences to that. And here is David. His decisions are haunting him and will haunt him with someone like Doeg the Edomite. But not only does the sin haunt us, and with that it feeds the bitterness of soul and the shame and the guilt that always comes with sin, you also need, need to notice that sin victimizes. Sin victimizes. It is a myth to believe that I can do whatever I want to do and it will affect no one. Too many homes are broken to suggest otherwise. Sin doesn't merely stir up shame. It will destroy lives, and not just mine, but those whom I claim to love. Saul, in verses 11 to 19, arise the knob, and we witness here the broadening of his violence. He, he, before, he was wanting to slaughter uh, his son and his son-in-law, but now he is seeking to slaughter an entire city of innocent people. And so verses 11 to 13, Saul confronts Ahimelech. Uh, Did you do this or not? And so Ahimelech responds in verses 14 to 15, and he makes three arguments. First of all, David is faithful to the king there in verse 14. He says, uh, uh, um, who among all your servants is so faithful to, as David who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? This is a striking argument. He says, why would I suspect David of being a fugitive or a criminal whenever there is no one in your entire administration more loyal to you than he? He's never tried to rob you of power. He's never tried to take your position. He's never tried to usurp you, your, your, your kingdom. He's, he's, he's always been faithful to you. And when you think about the story of David so far, he's been very loyal. He left his life as a herdsman in order to, 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 to soothe Saul's soul. He risked his life to slay a giant, moved into the house, married his daughter, has loved her dearly, taken good care of her, and does whatever Saul asks him, even to the point of leading armies and, and, and defeating the enemy. In fact, remember when David first fled from Saul, Jonathan talked David to go back into the to to the room where the, the spears are still there to be thrown at him. And they were thrown at him. He's been very faithful to Saul. I mean, let's, let's think about it. How many of us would have been that faithful to a boss like that? I don't think any of us would have been. 
David's been very faithful. So how in the world is Ahimelech going to know that David was the bad guy all of a sudden? And that leads to the second argument he makes. Ahimelech prays for Saul's court. You see it there in verse 15, the beginning. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? That's for David. He said, I pray for David. Can I tell you why he prays for David? Because David is part of Saul's administration. And here's a good lesson here, isn't it? You don't just pray for the politician you voted for. You pray for leaders of our nation, leaders of our state, leaders of our community, and those in their cabinet, those in their administration, those on their team. Look, David isn't king, but Ahimelech intercedes on his behalf as a leader of an army. He said, look, I pray for David because I pray for you. Look, in prayer, does that not demonstrate I want what is best for our nation and you as our leader and the people you have around him? And third argument he makes in the rest of verse 15 is that Ahimelech is not privy to political drama. Aren't you jealous of this a little bit? Right? He doesn't watch CNN all hours of the night. He gets off of social media. (laughs) Phone. You're awake now. Phone. What phone? Heart attack? What heart attack? Let not the king impute anything to his servant or, all, or to all the house of my father. Your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. So I don't keep up with what's going on in the halls of Congress. No, oh, I spend my time at the tabernacle in prayer. I got to just pause here and say, you would do better for your soul for our community and for our country, if you spend more time on your knees and less time in front of your television watching the news. You would do so much better for your soul. We would do well as evangelicals, American evangelicals and as voters, if we would practice that. Salvation will come from Air Force One. It will come from Christ. I'm reminded of the scene of uh, shortly after uh, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln John Wilkes Booth and, and David, uh, uh, his last name just left me, uh, his first name's David, uh, they were fleeing from, from the government. Of course, I just killed the president. And they stopped by a house in the middle of the night, and his name was Dr. Samuel Mudd. Dr. Samuel Mudd was a Confederate uh, 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 sympathizer, and so Wilkes Booth knew him from some, some connection. And so he goes in there with a broken leg, and Mud does what any doctor would do. He, he sets the leg, lets him rest, and then he goes on. And because of that singular act, Mud spent decades in, in prison. And whether that's right or wrong, what you see is Mud is now associated with a fugitive. So to Ahimelech is now associated with Ahimelech and will be punished as such. And in verses 16 and 19, we have the slaughter of the priests. And despite Ahimelech's protest, Saul orders their death. Notice Saul never refers to Ahimelech by his name, but only by his kinship. He doesn't respond to Ahimelech's logic. Rather, he resorts to his own bitterness, anger, and rage. Why? Because hate cannot be rationed with. Hate must be crucified before before it leaves in its wake countless victims. And are we not witnessing that today? If you are motivated by hate, you will have blood on your hands. You have burned communities on your hands. You can't claim to be tolerant and loving with a Molotov cocktail in your hands. That may seem like common sense to you and I, but when you are driven by hate and rage, it makes sense. It makes sense. Now, initially, Saul's servants refused to carry out the king's command. Bravo to them. Bravo to them. Just as the man's disobedience to the tyrants. 
But Doeg is an Edomite. What does he care about Yahweh's priests? He doesn't worship them. Worship Yahweh. He has no problem with slaughtering innocent people. And so he will slaughter 85 people. Priests, women, children, infants, and property. Now the language here is significant. We must look at it carefully because of how it's written. There at verse 19, Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Now, why is that language so important? Why all that sort of detail? It's because the writer is trying to tell us something about Saul's madness, Saul's rebellion. If you were to go back to chapter 15, we start in chapter 16 with the story of David. Chapter 15 is sort of the, the last straw that broke uh, the divine camel's back. And you remember that God orders Saul to uh, not just defeat the Amalekites, but slaughter the Amalekites, wipe them off, off the face of the earth. You remember what, what Saul didn't do? He didn't do that. And, and so in 1 Samuel uh, uh, 15... It says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. See if this sounds familiar. Do not spare them, kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That language sound familiar? What the writer of 1 Samuel is telling you is Saul was unwilling to obey God against his enemies. But he was willing to defy God in the murder of God's priests. Striking, isn't it? Evil, isn't it? The things that man will do to mankind. And don't you see that if Saul had obeyed God in chapter 15 with the Amalekites, the people of Nob would not have suffered this way. Sin doesn't just haunt us. It will make victims of others. This scene is saturated with victims, isn't it? 85 Innocent people lose their lives because of the actions of a few. Two things to to, to grab from, from this scene. First of all, God uses this as the fulfillment of his judgment on Eli's house. In chapter 2, remember that Eli is, is uh, a bad father. Uh, his, his sons are terrible and wicked, evil priests. So God uh, declares judgment upon the house of Eli. It says, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. He did not restrain them. And God here uses the sword of a madman to fulfill his divine plan. What it is you are to see here is that though you see chaos in our society, though, you, though it can be scary in, in the year 2020, you need to know that does not mean God is not sovereign or on his throne. God is not napping in the year 2020. God is still in sovereign control. And the reality is our sin and life choices do have a ripple effect across generations. So what you see here is that the decisions of Eli are now affecting his great-grandchildren. Are we not witnessing that today? How many generations of increased fatherlessness and broken homes have we seen that now has led to the age in which we live today? We are witnessing generations of anger, generations of resentment, generations of effeminate men, generations of lies sown by citizens and politicians alike, and we are reaping generations of what we have sown. But the second thing you need to see about this scene 
is the consequences of David's actions. Remember that it was in fear that David fled to Nob and then to Gath. Without considering the effect of his actions on others, they now suffer the brunt of the, of, of, of the blow. It is incredible the damage momentary pleasure and selfishness can cause others. How many children have to grow up in broken homes because of our foolishness, because of our selfishness? Sin not only haunts, but it has victims. But here's the third thing we, we need to see here is that the Savior saves. The Savior redeems us from such sin. Notice what it says, starting verse 20. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled from after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Now, a single survivor is left, uh, and he uh, runs to David and explains to David all that had happened. Now, Abiathar uh, uh, will stay with David for the rest of his life. He's like Gad and some of the others. And uh, he will rise to become a high priest with Zadok, the high priest. Uh, and uh, he fulfills another promise that God had made Eli. So, so God had promised the house of Eli, y'all going to be wiped out in judgment. He also promised the house of Eli, one of y'all from your house is going to survive. So in 1 Samuel 2.33, the only one of you whom I shall not cut off from the altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. This is the fulfillment of that promise in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So, so he runs and he finds refuge in David, but notice what David does. He responds by offering him both grace and protection. He does it in two ways. First of all, David confesses his role in, in the slaughter. Verse uh, 22, David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. It's striking, isn't it? Because it's not true. I didn't see David there with sword in hand, cutting down the priests. He can't be blamed for this, can he? He was just passing by and needed some bread. No, David knows better, doesn't he? In fact, Abiathar knows better. Because notice when Abiathar tells the story to David, who does Abiathar say that actually killed his family and everyone in Nob? Saul. But Saul wasn't the one with the sword. Doeg is the one with the sword. Ah, but Abiathar is a good theologian. He's a good Christian. He knows. Under Saul's command, by Saul's will, their murder is just as much on him. We understand this as Americans under our law, don't we? There's a reason why Charles Manson is in prison, even though he didn't kill anyone. He is responsible for what happened that fateful night. He is the one who brainwashed. He is the one who gave the orders. The same with Saul here. And David understands it too. David says, look, it is because of my decisions that I've made and I am responsible for. Look, you're not responsible for the actions of other people, but you are 100% for your role in everything. The words you've used, decisions you've made, places you've gone, the things you've done. 
and the ripple effects from that you are responsible for. But isn't just that David confesses his sin here? How important is that? Because we live in an age that wants to deny the existence of sin, and, then, and in denying it, we can rationalize it, justify it, uh, sweep it under the rug and say, well, it's not that bad. Just look at what these other people have done. That's not what David does. He confesses he is guilty. But then notice, secondly, David extends grace to Abiathar. You see there in the rest of it, he confesses, verse 23, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. You see what a different, different man David is? See, when he was in Nob and met with Ahimelech, he was scared to death. He was looking for refuge. And he thought he'd find it in Nob with the showbread and Goliath's sword. Then he goes to Gath thinking, they'll hire me out as a mercenary. As a mercenary, I'll be protected by an entire army. Saul won't come and look for me here. But then he discovered that won't work. So then he finds himself a refuge in a dark cave. And it is there he discovers that Christ is his refuge and strength. And having discovered the grace of God, the one who is driven by fear, tells others under him, do not be afraid. With God, you are in safekeeping. One who experiences the redemption of Christ shows the same grace to those in need of it. See, what we have here is a picture of the gospel. Here, David confesses his sin and having experienced the beauty and power of grace, shows the same grace towards others. That is what separates him from Saul. Because by the end of the narrative, we see quite a contrast between these two kings. Saul is the slaughterer of priests. David is the one who protects him. One is guided by his guilt and despair, the other by the word and grace of God. We cannot escape that sin haunts and sin victimizes, but the good news of the gospel is that the Savior redeems, even from that which may come back to haunt us and that which may victimize others. Christ has taken all of it upon himself so that in him our identity is not in what we have done or the sins we've committed or what have been committed against us, but all of it is laid upon his pierced wrists, allowing us to be free. That's the hope we have in Christ. And it is a power greater and sin. Let's pray.